Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. When you bail out on commitments you have, or God forbid, you leave your family because things are too unbearable, you are doing things not in a vacuum, not by yourself. You are interconnected in relationships, and when you quit, the people around you learn to quit. Your children learn to quit. Your friends learn to quit. Our culture loves quitting. Are you encountering difficulties in life? Time for a change. Lose passion for your career? Well, switch jobs. Feeling like family life just isn't for you? Leave. But what does God want us to do when times are tough? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is diving deeper into David's story. We're studying 1 Samuel chapter 27, just as David is feeling fed up and ready to abandon God's plan. Pastor Mike has titled this series simply, Don't Quit. Let's dive in. I put it this way in your outline if you're taking notes this morning. Be sure and catch this. You and I can't tolerate pessimism. We cannot tolerate pessimism. I put it this way. Don't tolerate pessimism. If you have a pessimistic downer thought about the future of your career, your job, your family, your relationships, or the things that God has had you commit to, cast it out. I can't, I can't tolerate that. If David would have had that thought, and I'm sure he had it before, and said, I'm not going to entertain that thought because that thought has no compatibility with being a follower of Yahweh. If he would have thought that and said, I can't entertain those thoughts. God is doing something, and he's doing something good because he loves me. I don't understand it, but I'm not going to think badly. I'm not going to think one day I'll be killed because Samuel made it clear I'm not going to be killed. I'm going to be the king. Jonathan, the son of the king, said, you're not going to be killed. You're going to be the king of Israel one day. And even Saul himself in chapter 26, said, you're going to be king one day. God is going to prosper. You're going to do great. He didn't believe those thoughts. Those were the optimistic, faith-based, biblical thoughts. Instead, he was willing to say, ah, I'm going to be killed out here one day. I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. I can't go on. I'm going to escape to the most wicked nation in, in the ancient Near East, and I'm going to go hang out there. Jot this reference down. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, verse number 10 and 11. Here is Israel being spanked. And when you're being spanked, that's a time to think pessimistic thoughts, right? <laughs> it is bad. And here is God with Israel over his knee, spanking Israel, sending them to Babylon for 70 years in exile. He is, in his parental role, chastising his children. And in the midst of the spanking, he says, here's what he says, Jeremiah 29. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Hmm? <laughs> Did your dad ever say that when he was spanking you? Oh, this is for your own good son. This is, you know, he's just like, what? No, this hurts. It's painful. Stop. Right? And he's sitting here giving you lectures about how this is good for you. Well, it's no different with God. He may be putting you through, right now, in your situation, some of the most difficult days you've had relationally with that person. And if he is, God is not saying, think bad thoughts, think pessimistically, think about relief, think about options, think about quitting. He wants you to say, you know what, through all of this, I'm going to work something together in your life that is, as he put in the words of this prophet, to give you a hope and a future. 
He has a future and he has a hope for you. That's not pie in the sky, lack of realism. That's biblical Christianity. Painful stuff hurts. I realize that. But I don't have the biblical right to entertain thoughts like David when he says, I'm going to be destroyed by Saul one day. The best thing I can do is quit. Because that's in essence what he said. I'll go hang out with the enemy for a while. Back to 1 Samuel 27. I hope that point is clear to you. You and I have no right to entertain pessimistic thoughts. When you sense it, when you feel it, when you have one, mm, say no, out. Can't have that. Verse number two describes his exodus from God's promised land, from God's chosen people. And the text says that David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, the king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath, the most wicked place, in the most wicked city, in the most wicked nation, the enemies of God's chosen people, with a wicked king, Achish. And then it adds this phrase, each man had his family with him. Now that's the first time that this scriptural text in the book of Samuel has tried to get us to think about guys bouncing, you know, three-year-olds on their knee, or about moms and dads sitting around a table with, you know, the nine-year-old and the six-year-old and the four-year-old. This is the first time we have this image come into our minds that it wasn't just 600 men. It was 600 men and their families. And then he goes on to explain in the rest of this verse, David had his two wives with him. And it describes not only their names, it gives us where they're from. Here's a little description of the family. This is huge, and I think it's telling for us to realize that the narrator grow, goes to great pains to reveal to us and broaden our image that David, when he bailed out, took a bunch of people with him. That when David left, he taught not just 600 soldiers how to quit, he taught 600 soldiers and their families and his own wives how to quit. He marched off with over a thousand people, that's a conservative estimate, and said to God's chosen people in God's promised land, people he was chosen to defend and protect and one day shepherd, he said, come on guys, we're going to die out here in the desert. Let's go. Do you know what the statistics are, don't you, of kids that grow up in divorced homes? I'm not saying anyone's destined to this, but you recognize that the statistics of people that grow up in homes with divorced parents are far more likely to be divorced themselves. Why is that? Is there some kind of divorce gene floating around in the DNA or something? Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that kids that have watched dad get so frustrated that he marches out and never comes back? Why is it, do you think, that when they're in their marriage and they're 27 years old and things get hard from them that they start to contemplate that there's a way out? Because it has a huge effect when you and I see modeled in our lives and people we look up to, when we see them quit, we start to think quitting is an option. Do you remember Peter, don't you? He had failed miserably by denying Christ the night before he was crucified. He sat there warming himself in Caiaphas's court. A young servant girl comes up. He starts cursing like a sailor to distance himself from Christ. This was just after he told Christ, I'll die for you. Though everyone else flee and fall away, I'll never fall away. I'll be faithful to you till the end. He's completely decimated in his courage and his confidence is gone. Though Christ was crucified and resurrected and appeared to the disciples before, Peter said, I'm checking out. And though God said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, Peter said, I'm not the quarterback for this team. I'm pretty much a failure. And he goes out in John 21, verse number two, and he goes fishing. 
He says, I'm going fishing. And Christ had to come and ask him three times, the same number of times that he denied Christ, and ask him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And you remember, every time Peter responded to that, what did he say? He said, I know you love me. And Christ said, if you do, then do what? Feed my sheep. Get back in ministry. Don't give up. Don't quit. You read between the lines in John 21, it is the most powerful passage about Christ telling someone who feels like quitting, don't quit. But the interesting parallel between 1 Samuel 27 and John 21 is that in both cases, the narrator goes to lengths to tell us that when one guy quits, other people go with him. Because in verse number 2 and 3 of John 21, the text says that when Peter says, I'm going fishing, the other disciples, not all of them, that some of the disciples say, we'll go with you. I put it this way in your outline, number two. I think it's very important that though in verse four of our passage, David finds the relief he's looking for. The text says when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. He got what he want, but when he got it, he got it at a really high price because people were watching. I put it this way, number two. Remember who's watching. Because in your life, when you stop doing that ministry because it gets too hard, when you quit that job because it gets too rough, when you leave that town because it becomes so whatever, when you leave and move from church to church because that person has offended you or it's become too difficult, when you bail out on commitments you have or, God forbid, you leave your family because things are too unbearable, you are doing things not in a vacuum, not by yourself. You are interconnected in relationships, and when you quit, the people around you learn to quit. Your children learn to quit. Your friends learn to quit. And you and I need to recognize what a powerful thing that is. You don't find godly people in the Bible quitting and having no ripple effects in the people around them. Romans puts it really well. No one lives to themselves and no one dies to themselves. And if I could add a phrase to that based on our passage, no one quits to themselves. You walk out on a commitment, regardless of what that commitment is. If you promise to do something and you don't do it, if you promise to be a part of something and you bail out halfway through it, if you take a calling where God has led you somewhere and at some point you say, I quit, you are going to take people with you. It may not be this week and it may not be this time, but people around you will learn that quitting is a real option and we will create a culture. It's already created outside the walls of the church, but I would hope that we could restore it inside the church. But if we don't, we'll create a culture just like the world that says quitting is a real option. Giving up, that's a real way to find relief. That's not the way that God has designed us to find relief when we're hurting. There's a whole better way. So we need to think of the price and the price is who's watching me. I look out here, a lot of you have kids in your house. Do you think that anything passes by these kids? You know, some parents are so naive. They think their kids don't, you know, they're not even really tuning into what they're doing. You recognize, don't you, that your kids are watching how faithful and loyal you are to the things you say you're committed to. They watch you. And we love these kids. We care about our children. I want my two sons to know that when God calls dad to do something for him, that dad is going to finish it. I want them to know that when dad is called to a family to lead it and to love mom, that dad's going to do that if it kills him. He'll do it to the end, no matter how hard it is. You would think that the church would be the exception. Oh, the world quits. Divorce rates through the roof. Job changes, what, every three years, whatever. You'd think the church would be setting the pace. But I've got to say it's not. 
And it starts with the pastors. The pastor is supposed to model this kind of endurance and perseverance and faithfulness. The average pastor comes to a church, begins to pastor it, builds this relationship, preaches to them, says that he loves them, wants to shepherd them and care for them. The average pastor cleans out his office and leaves before his fifth anniversary. Did you know that? The average pastor comes to a church, says, I love you, I care about you, let's walk through our future together. He's gone in five years. Something's wrong with that. As an average person, we look at jobs as stepping stones to gratify ourselves, don't we? I mean, this is something that'll help me get what I want out of life. Let's just think about the average pastor, and I'm just, I apply this to myself because I, you know, it's where I live, but let's say the guy's pastored by the time he's dead, he's pastored you know, seven churches, and he's been on you know, three committees, missions organizations, whatever. What does that do? It sprinkles him throughout the world, you know, throughout the congregation. To me, it's like I look at God's calling in my life to be faithful, to finish what I start, and I think I spend my life in one place. That does good for the people that get ministered to. It may not do good for me. There may be something around the corner, and people have called me foolish for making the commitment that I'm here to stay, because what if something better comes along? Well, is that the way you treat your marriage? See what I'm saying? And we don't think that way about our marriage. At least we shouldn't if we're godly people, right? doesn't matter if something better comes along. I make commitments that I finish. That ought to be our commitment. And we ought to say it doesn't matter because I want my children to know and I want the people around me to know and I want to model because I know there are a lot of people watching. I want to model that kind of fidelity. Things get hard, yeah, they may get hard. Things in the family get hard, yeah, they get hard. Things in the committee or the ministries or the things that I've called, yeah, they get hard. But you don't quit. Too many people watching. It's too expensive to quit. It all starts with pessimistic thinking. Don't tolerate that. People around you, that ups the ante. I can't quit because people are watching. Thirdly, look at the next verse, if you would. Verse number 5. 1 Samuel 27. David says to Achish, Hey, if I found favor in your eyes, then let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, it belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. It's right in the middle of the Philistine territory. And David, you know, this, this ought to just be like fingernails on a chalkboard. David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. That's the saddest commentary so far in the book of 1 Samuel. David, the anointed prince and king of Israel, lived in Philistine territory. For a year and four months, willingly? Was he a prisoner? Was he locked up in stocks and chains? How could he do that? He quit. Why did he quit? He didn't count the cost, knowing that he would teach future generations to quit. He thought pessimistically about situations he should have thought op optimistically about. Wow. Well, I hope he made the best of it. Look at the next verse. David and his men went out and tried to make the best of it. They started raiding people groups in the southern borders of Philistia that were ancient enemies of Israel. And whenever David attacked an area, he didn't leave a man or a woman alive. That's overkill, by the way. More on that in a minute. But he took sheep and cattle and donkeys and camel and clothes. And then he'd return to Achish, and Achish would say, Hey, where did you go raiding today? And David would say, mm, uh, ooh, ooh, Against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of uh, Jeremel. Against the Negev of the Kenites, these are Israelites. He is lying. He is saying, I went and fought against my own people. I'm a full-blown traitor, King Achish. He did not leave a man or woman alive. That's not the way Joshua was supposed to do things, only in certain cases. 
He would go and overkill, slaughter, annihilate everyone. Why? Because he was afraid someone might sneak off to Gath, the Philistine capital, and might inform on us, it says in verse number 11, and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said, wow, this guy's a good guy. He's become so odious, so stinky to his own people, the Israelites. He'll be my servant forever. The king of Israel is the servant of the most evil, wicked empire there is in the southern border of Judah, the Philistines? I don't believe it. We shouldn't. It's pathetic and it's sad. And it demonstrates for us a series of compromises. Not only was David now counted as a traitor and seen as disloyal against his own people, we see in this passage he has to break God's commands to do it. He's lying. He's killing people that he should not kill. He is being, in God's sight, totally unfaithful and unloyal, not only to God, but to people. Number three on your outline, if you and I are going to prevent this in our own life, not only do we need to reject pessimistic thoughts and remember who's watching us when we walk out of our commitments, number three, you and I need to cultivate a kind of love for loyalty that we don't now have. Love loyalty, real simple. You and I need to love loyalty. David at this point didn't love loyalty as much as he loved the relief he might get from quitting. Do you love loyalty that much? Do you love the fact that at the end of your life, you'll be able to stand back and say, God, I finished what you called me to start. I wasn't floating from city to city and job to job and career to career and church to church and family to family. I found where you were calling me and I stayed and I did it because I learned to love loyalty the end of my life. I don't want to look back and say, wow, it was great. I really gleaned the best of the world. I want God to look at me and say, I planted him somewhere, and he didn't squirm out of it. He stayed there until the end. Well, there are obvious exceptions. You may not have found your calling in life yet. You may not know what God wants you to do every day of your life. You may not have a sense that you're in the career that God wants you to be in. I understand that, but once you find it, and once you sense that God has called you there, you may sense that this is limiting God. I don't think it is. God wants people to be faithful. Make some commitments to be faithful. And even if you've made foolish vows, I have people come in and say, well, I'd love to be faithful to my marriage or to my family, but you know, I was foolish when I got into it. It wasn't God's will. I'm confident of that. If you've made a foolish vow, you've got to keep it. Be faithful to what you've committed yourself to and be faithful to what God has called you to. And the only way to do that when it gets tough is to love loyalty. Love loyalty. I love loyalty more than myself. I've got to love loyalty more than my comfort. I've got to love loyalty more than relief. I'm going to be loyal. And for those of us that grew up in families where we didn't see that, for those of us that have been in situations in our careers or our jobs or in our life and our culture where we just don't see that model, it's time for us to start to be the pace setters in a world that loves to quit and say, I won't quit. It's always too soon to quit. David blew it. Unfortunately, good people sometimes show us that they're not faithful to the God that's called them. And perhaps this message, as I've heard other people comment out on the patio to me, that this is a painful message to them because they're just getting over a divorce or they've just changed jobs for the 18th time or they're in the fifth church, you know, this, this year. <laughs> I say, this is hard. Somebody said to me last night, I wish I would have heard this two years ago. I would have saved myself a lot of... You know, if you've quit and you've been faithless... Here's a great verse for you. It's found in 2 Timothy. You don't need to turn there. 
2.13, and it says, though, it says, we are faithless, and sometimes we are, and David was, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I look at a passage like that, and I think, thank God for that. If you've quit something lately that you shouldn't have, get, get back and try and repair it. If you've modeled for your family and you've been a dad that quits or a mom that quits, if you've been committed to something, it can be as simple as a coach and a, a softball team, but if, you have, if you've started it and you haven't finished it, man, repent and make sure you tell everybody around you, you know, this is not what really God would want me to be. If you've been faithful, faithless rather, then would you in your repentance just rely on the fact that praise God, God is faithful. And he'll become to us, I hope, a model and a template and a pattern of what God wants in our lives. People that commit ourselves to what God has called us to and we don't waver. I love this verse. It's found in, in, in Psalm 15. Psalm 15, 4. It says, the godly man, that's the context, the godly man, he keeps his oaths even when it hurts. And if it's painful for you, I would have loved to sit down with David when he entertained these pessimistic thoughts and said, Dave, don't quit too much at stake. And I plead with you and I say to you this morning, if you're tempted to quit, don't do it. Hang in there. These simple steps perhaps can provide the help to not give up when things get tough. Don't quit. Let's pray. God, it's obvious in our day that we have become so comfortable with quitting that we hardly see it as sin anymore. If you've called us to a family, to be a husband or a wife or a father or a child. Help us to be that until our dying breath. God, we want to be faithful because it reflects the character of God, the character, the loyal, faithful character of Christ. Let people know it too. Let them be able to count on us, to recognize that in us. If they look at the people around them, may they see us as the exception, the person who they can count on to be there. Make us faithful in our commitments that I might glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You're listening to pastor, author, and teacher, Mike Fabares, and this is Focal Point. Now, if you joined us a little late today and want to listen to the full-length message, or if you'd like to download the PDF study notes, you'll find them online at focalpointradio.org. Just look for the message titled, Help for When You Feel Like Giving Up. Focal Point is here to provide you with biblical answers to the questions you face every day. And did you know that as you listen right now, you're joined by thousands of others across the country, maybe even around the world, who are tuning in on the radio, the Focal Point mobile app, on our website, or through various podcasting options. All these are completely free. And that's because people like you give to cover the cost. We're counting on folks who share our passion for straightforward Bible teaching to help support this ministry with a tangible gift. If you believe in this work, then please give today by calling 888-320-5885 or donate online at focalpointradio.org. To say thanks for your donation today, we'll send you a book about what it means to love God's Word. It's called How to Eat Your Bible by Nate Pickowitz. Request your copy by calling 888-320-5885 or give and request the book online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. 
We also have a free resource we'd like to send you without obligation. It's a Bible timeline pamphlet that includes dates of kings, prophets, battles, and key events. Find it online at focalpointradio.org. And before we go today, we'd like to invite you to join us online. You can learn more when you visit focalpointradio.org connect or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Pastor Mike. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again on Thursday when we continue exploring the depths of Scripture right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.